0: Ezra chapter 9 verses 5 through 9. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today." But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. We come again today to look at this beautiful, exemplary prayer of Ezra for himself and for his people. And it really is beautiful. But I would encourage you not to get so caught up in its beauty that you miss the absolute sincerity of His words. I mean it this way. Many times we read prayers or hear them prayed in church in other places, and we kind of skip over the churchy things in them. I find that often people have problems with prayers that I've seen in myself during the course of my journey in Jesus Christ. Like when you see praise given to God in many prayers, it's easy to feel like it's a bit unnecessary or of lesser importance. It's easy to forget that a prayer containing nothing but praise is entirely appropriate for God who is worthy of all praise and all glory. But I've known some who thought, that the praise was necessary in a prayer to get God to answer the real purpose of the prayer. We have this idea in our minds that we have to praise Him. We have to say nice things about Him so He would be better disposed toward us, more likely to answer our prayers. As we saw in the prior weeks, praise, however, helps us understand the surpassing greatness of God and our own unworthiness. As men and women still residing in the flesh, we should never miss an opportunity to remind us that we are not and never will be God's equal. We will never understand everything about Him. Given all eternity, learning something every single day of all eternity, we will still never understand God. And so therefore we should never skip a lesson in humility. It is to the extent that we understand the vast difference between our own abilities and the infinite majesty of God, the uncreated Creator, that we are able to praise Him appropriately. But you know, I've also had people... I had a Sunday school teacher one time when I was in grade school that told us that if you didn't say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, God wouldn't answer it. Has anybody ever told you that? I assure you, that the recitation of the name of Jesus Christ is not the spiritual equivalent of putting a postage stamp on your prayer to ensure that it's delivered. Now, I do make a habit of concluding many of my prayers with that phrase, but it's there to remind me that I should only be seeking those things that the Lord seeks. That I want what I pray for, what I ask for, to be the very things that move the heart of God. I'm not giving Him advice. I'm seeking from Him guidance. But one of the biggest dangers in prayer, perhaps in preachers most of all, is that we ourselves try to be more eloquent than real in our prayers. But I ask you, which do you think the God who made you, who called you, who adopted you would rather hear? Your eloquence or your honesty? When my child comes to me, if he speaks well, I might be proud. But if he comes to me saying, Father, I think I should should receive from you This ice cream cone that you told me I shall not have. All the eloquence in the world will not compel me. You want to talk about the difference between eloquence and honesty. You need look no further than the prayers of the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. All the eloquence of the Pharisee did not overcome his pride. Jesus said he was praying to himself. All the simplicity of the publican did not compromise his humility. And so when we come before God, let us be real. Let us be honest, like we see in the prayer of Ezra today. Because I think that is exactly why Ezra prayed aloud to God here in chapter 9. I think this is exactly why this prayer is preserved for us by the Holy Spirit in His Scripture. It is much the same reason that we pray aloud in worship each Lord's day. As he prayed, he was leading others, particularly those who had come to him in confession, to help them understand how great their sin was. It was a prayer to God indeed, but it was also a model prayer for those around him to absorb and to offer to God as their own. I recall as a young Christian... Asking one time, what am I supposed to do when someone else is praying aloud? For many of us who were raised in church from the time we were toddlers, we were simply taught to bow our heads, close our eyes, and shut our mouths when somebody else is praying, right? But what about those who are more mature, especially those who have begun to live in the faith that they have been called to? What should believers, even mature believers, do when someone else is praying aloud in church? I'll tell you a few things, and then we'll get on with with the passage. First, if you have a particular burden, a burden on your heart that you need to take before the Lord, never let anything stop you from carrying your burden to Him. It is legitimate to make your own silent prayer to God, even if somebody else is praying aloud. You get your business done with God. That is one of the reasons we come to worship. And even more than that, no one will judge you harshly if that business with God extends into the next hymn, if that business with God extends into the Scripture reading, or that business to God extends into the sermon itself. Nobody thinks poorly of you. You stay in His presence as long as you need to. I call your attention to Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet relates his own call to God. He tells us that he was in the temple for worship. And he tells us of his exalted vision and he says, I saw the Lord. And then he tells us that the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And in that encounter, we see his confession of sin and his call to serve God. There were hundreds, possibly thousands of worshipers in the temple. But Isaiah saw the Lord. I can tell you Isaiah probably does not remember what the sermon was on that day. He had more important business. He was in the presence of God. All the time that that voice shook the foundations of the temple didn't stir anyone else from their business. He had an encounter with the Almighty. Likewise, if you have sin to confess in repentance before God, do it and don't let anything stop you. If you have a crushing burden that you need to take before the Lord, carry it to Him with confidence. If your heart is lifted in awe and in praise as His Holy Spirit has illumined His Word in your heart, praise Him. And you can do all that while somebody else is voicing a prayer aloud. The second thing, if you have none of those things, if there's no urgent, unfinished prayer business in your heart, you can allow the prayer being spoken to guide your own heart in prayer. I would say that the least beneficial things you can do are to think about the things outside of worship to God or to make judgments on the eloquence of the speaker. Allow those phrases and those intentions that are spoken aloud be a prayer to guide you in worship to God. Let the praises that are spoken aloud bring forth from within you praise to God. Let the confessions that are spoken aloud bring to your mind sins or dark places in your heart that need the light of the Holy Spirit. Because if you look closely at the last two chapters of Ezra, you'll see that is exactly how these officials treated the prayer of Ezra. As Ezra was proclaiming the faithfulness of God, they were convicted over their own unfaithfulness. When Ezra was proclaiming God's mighty works, they saw how weak and how needy they truly were in God's sight. We should always welcome the confession that a meeting with God will bring. And so when we read the phrase in this prayer this morning, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. We should not pass over it as hyperbole or exaggeration or even as poetry. Rather, we should look at the truth of what Ezra was praying here. Because I think he was speaking the absolute truth. Certainly it is stated as a metaphor, but that doesn't make it any less true. The picture of these words explains eloquently the reason Ezra was in such despair over the people's sin. Do you see the picture that he's drawing in this prayer to God, confessing the sins of His people, including Himself? He calls them iniquities. Not just sins. He doesn't say, God, we have erred. He calls them iniquities. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. That is a very special word. You might have thought of sins as missing the mark. Or you might have thought of sin of taking the wrong path. You might have thought of sin, of making a mistake. But that has nothing to do at all with this word, iniquities. Please allow me to show you another place that this very word is used. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 15, we are told when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the iniquity of the city. Perhaps in your translation you might have the word punishment rather than iniquity. But that's okay. Because the word itself contains both ideas in it. When Ezra chooses this word... To describe what his people have done, the guilt that they have before God, he chooses a word that is a word that means only one thing intentional sin, even rebellion that deserves God's wrath. He did not choose missing the mark. He didn't choose making the wrong choice. He didn't choose erred. He said we made a choice and we abandoned God. It is iniquity. It describes the great sin, the iniquity of Sodom. And it is the very word Ezra uses here to describe the great sin of his day. Their sin had not been accidental. They didn't sin because they didn't know. They sinned because they didn't think they would be caught. They sinned because they didn't think God would do anything about it. They sinned, as Ezra points out next, because their fathers had done so. That is always the danger of partnering with idolatry. We end up condemning future generations to its slavery. This is the reason God warns his people over and over and over again about cooperation or collaboration with the idolatry around them. We see it in Exodus chapter 20 verses 5 and 6. In the heart, of the Ten Commandments. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. That same statement can be found over and over and over again in the law of God. You can look in Exodus chapter thirty-four, verse seven, Numbers fourteen, eighteen, Deuteronomy five, nine, and other places. God wants us to be very sure that He means this. Sin that parents tolerate, iniquity that parents tolerate, often in themselves becomes idolatry and rebellion and death for their children, their grandchildren, and even further. But before we follow that particular thread, let's look at what he says about this iniquity. He says, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. His plea is not that they have done great things for God. He doesn't go to God touting all the good stuff that they had done. He doesn't talk about the work of rebuilding the temple that the fathers and the grandfathers had done. Nothing in this prayer is meant to mitigate or lessen the guilt of the people. He offers no defense because there is no defense for the people or for Himself. The only thing He can do is to confess that iniquity before God. When we properly recognize our guilt before a holy God, we will have no thought at all of defending ourselves or proclaiming our works or our goodness even the things that we do that we think are good, are at best done with mixed motives. All we can possibly raise to our holy God are filthy rags that He endows with goodness and makes right. Even those good works He calls us to do had to be prepared by Him in advance. In Ephesians 2.10 we read, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Anything good that we might have done, anything beneficial to the kingdom of God that we might have done, was prepared by God in advance. The work Ezra is confessing here is the work of iniquity. That those same fathers, that those same grandfathers, and further back than that, had stacked up. The great labor, effort, and expense of rebuilding the temple has nothing compared to the evil and iniquity their fathers had built up in their day and passed on to their children. They may have laid stone upon stone, beam upon beam admirably, but the result of what they had actually built with their lives was a people who had abandoned fidelity to God. And without fidelity, that beautiful temple was an empty shell. It was a body without life. The wall that they really built, the tower of iniquity that they had built up, had literally multiplied above their heads. They might have thought that they built great things. Everlasting buildings or strong families when in reality all they had built was a mountain of rebellion. The work of their lives was a perversion of the law of God. And Ezra says, we are drowning in that guilt. That is the reason that God in His love tells us in His Word so many times to repent. He pleads with those same rebellious people through Ezekiel. In chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, He says, I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, or keep their ordinances, or defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and observe them. Sin in any form is deadly because sin in any form leads you away from faithfulness to God. It multiplies in your life if you allow it a foothold and it will continue to exact its price until someone breaks through that sin in repentance through faith in Jesus Christ. The good news though is that there is no sin so high that God's mercy cannot overcome it. You are never so far gone that you can't repent. We saw it when we read in Acts 17 this morning when Paul stood upon Mars Hill And he says that God is calling men everywhere to repent, to come back to Him. And He is not far off. He's right there. Psalm 108, verses 3 and 4 says, I will give thanks to You, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to You among the nations, for Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds that mountain of sin that the fathers had built was completely overshadowed by the mercy and the grace of God. All they had to do was repent. Turn from their evil. Turn from their idolatry. Throw themselves upon His mercy. And we do that in one name, Jesus Christ alone. But Ezra sees, as God said through prophet after prophet, that this sin began long before His day. He says, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Often, the hardest sin to recognize is the sin of your father or your mother. And particularly so if that sin is baked into the person you have become. These aren't sins that you learn from your peer group or from a rebellious period of time. These are sins that have been taught to you by example your entire life. The way we react, the way we reason, the way we see the world and interpret it. All these things the things that we see often as who we are can be that very sinful legacy. That legacy of iniquity. Perhaps there's a sin that you see in your mother's life that you've seen cropping up in you on occasion. Or a problem in your father's that has become a part of you as well. Now parents, please understand, no one expects parents to be perfect. We are all, I presume, imperfect, incomplete people doing our best to train the next generation of imperfect and incomplete people to the best of our ability. The point here is not to bash parents and to place onto them a load of guilt. The point is to call you parents and ask you to examine in the light of God's Word the assumptions you have been making that might be wrong according to God's Word. We cannot assume even our parents' interpretation of the Scriptures is correct, particularly if it minimizes their sin or ours, or if it magnifies somebody else's sin. As a parent, I confess that parenting is a really tough job. But as a parent who does not have the complete wisdom of God in myself or in my understanding, I take great comfort that our merciful God has given my children everything they will need for godliness in the pages of His Scripture. I take great comfort in knowing that God's love for His children makes my love look minuscule in comparison. God's mercy overcomes anything they inherit from me. Now I do have one final warning to those of us In here, who were the child of somebody else. And I think that includes all of us. There's a great cult of victimhood in our nation today where we want to blame our problems on someone else. It would have been easy for the Jews at this time in Ezra's day to plead that they were merely poorly taught or poorly trained. And mean by that that they bear no responsibility in their own sin. God reacted strongly to that attitude in their day. He reacts strongly to that attitude in ours. Ezekiel 18 beginning in verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. See, what they were saying is if God visits the iniquity down to the third and the fourth generation. I'm simply inheriting the guilt of my fathers. There's nothing I have to do with this. I couldn't help it. It's just the way I was made. Have you ever heard anyone excuse their sin with those words? It was just the way I was raised. It's just who I am. There is always a legacy of sin, but there is always repentance and mercy and grace that is offered to every single generation. If you choose to stay in the sin of your parents, the sin of your peers, or the sin that so easily entangles you, it is your soul that is in peril. If you come to God, and seek His mercy, and His forgiveness, and seek to follow Him, you break that chain. For every generation, for every person, you make the choice to sin in the manner of your fathers, or you make the choice to repent and to leave it behind. even if you came into this world with horrible examples, God's mercy can still shine into your heart and free you from the sin of your fathers. If you hear God's call to leave your sin behind and embrace Him and you follow in faith, He saves you. He frees you. I don't care If the sin that so easily entangles you goes back generation after generation after generation, my daddy did it. My granddaddy did it. His daddy did it. I don't care how far back you can trace that sin. You are called to repent of it. God can break that chain if you follow him if you do repent the next generation after you may be free of that sin that you inherited don't look to your fathers for that kind of freedom john 8:36 Jesus tells us, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, You are the only good, Father. You are the one who has called us out of darkness into light. You are the one who has warned us that the sins that we have inherited can kill us just as surely as those we have invented. Let us never be satisfied by saying that's just who I am. Let us always be seeking God to follow You. And God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would convict us in the moment where we try to cover our sins, to justify our thoughts. Let Your Spirit, through Your Holy Scriptures, search our hearts and call out those dark places the places where flesh dwells. Because we have been called to be children of light. We have been raised up by your spirit. And you are the Father that we long to emulate. It is in the name of Jesus Christ who gave Himself to redeem us from our sin that we pray, Amen.